When you think about the most devastating wildfire in the history of our country, what region of our country might come to mind? California, Arizona, the parts of the world where we have our wildfire season. Well, there's some uh, expert Wisconsin historians in the room, and I just saw some of you go like this, because one of the most devastating wildfires in the history of our country happened right here in the state of Wisconsin in 1871. It was a late fall day, and there were some railroad workers who had a brush fire going, and the, the weather had been really dry, and there's this massive cold front, so there's this wind, and the fire took off before they knew it, burning hundreds of square miles in just a matter of hours. Survivors say that it looked like a tornado going across the eastern part of the state. It was wild. It happened on the same day as the Great Chicago Fire in 1871. But nobody ever hears about the Peshtigo Fire. We always talk about the Great Chicago Fire. But did you know that the damage to property was about the same, about $170 million? But five times as many people, 600 or more, lost their lives in the Peshtigo Fire. Yet we rarely talk about it. When we think about wildfire, it's, it's where that phrase comes from. That spread like wildfire because it moves like that. Now, one of the only things that I can think of that spreads faster than wildfire words, <laughs> especially in a small town, especially within a friend group, especially in a small community, word travels like wildfire. And that's exactly where we find Jesus in the beginning of his ministry tonight. If you have your Bibles from me in Mark chapter two, and Jesus' ministry is in its infancy. He just called a couple of his first disciples. He just did a couple of signs and wonders. He, he healed uh, a leper and he healed Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. He healed this demonized person it was all in the north region, uh, kind of by the Sea of Galilee on the North Shore. A lot of small towns that were close together and word was traveling like, like wildfire. To say that Jesus was a, a local celebrity would be an understatement. Everybody in the area knew who this guy was. He was a miracle worker. He was a teacher. Everybody knew about this guy. But tonight, as we continue our series, The Great Adventure, Journeying with Jesus, looking at the geography as ministry, we're going to the city of Capernaum. Everyone say Capernaum. Great job. You can speak whatever language that is. I actually don't even know. Capernaum was a more significant town than Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. It was right along a, a trade route, right along the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the New Testament gospel writers, they actually give Capernaum a little bit of a, a special place among the cities of Galilee. They call uh, Capernaum Jesus' own city. Matthew even says it's the town where Jesus lived. Now, if you visited Capernaum today, there's a couple things that you would see. Here's a view from the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Looking south, it's a beautiful town situated right on the shore uh, of the ocean. And if you traveled there, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, rather, it's not the ocean. Uh, if you traveled there, you'd also see the ruins of a third century limestone synagogue, which is our next photo. This was built in the third century AD after the time of Christ. This is limestone. Underneath the limestone is basalt, uh, which is another type of rock. It dates back to the first century where Jesus would have taught. Underneath the floor of that synagogue, Jesus would have taught on the floor beneath. If you visited Capernaum today, you'd also see the ruins of what uh, legend claims to be Peter's house. Here's another photo. 
Uh, there's an octagonal-shaped church that was built there by the Byzantines in the 5th century, but legend believes that this was the house that Peter lived in. And right above it, which is the next picture, is a memorial that was built in 1990 right over the top of Peter's house. It's kind of cool. You can actually look uh, right down into that old octagonal church, and you can see uh, what is believed to be Peter's house. If legend is correct, then that's where tonight's text took place. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there's no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Let's pause there. When we read a text like this and we say that, we read that Jesus was at home, it makes it sound like Jesus was a homeowner and had property in Capernaum. That wasn't likely the case. Look back at Mark 1, verse 29 a page earlier possibly, it says, and immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue, that synagogue we were just looking at, and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And the text goes on to say that Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. But what does it say? He went to the home of Simon and Andrew. That's the same house. So when Mark says in chapter two that Jesus went home, he went to Peter's house. And if history is correct, if legend is correct, if the picture we just saw is actually the house that Peter lived in, it was a large house. It was above average in size for, a church, or of, for homes of this day, so it could fit more people. And you have to understand something about the hospitality code of the ancient, ancient Near East. It's not like the, the Midwest hospitality code where you're not just going to show up at my house. Some of you might, but it's probably culturally frowned upon. Generally, to go over to somebody's house, we have to be invited Um, and if you go over to somebody's house, you often will bring a gift. That's just kind of hospitality in America. If you like it or not, it doesn't really matter. That wasn't how it worked in Jesus' day. People would just show up at other people's house unannounced, and you were expected to provide for them. So when people heard that Jesus was in Peter's house teaching, it didn't matter. They just showed up, and the house was instantly full. That's how fast his ministry was spreading Jesus fame was spreading like wildfire throughout the region. And you can picture it, this small ancient house, there's standing room only, there's not even enough room to get in at the door. Verse three, chapter two, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Okay, let's pause there. For this uh, account, this text to make sense, we've got to understand house construction in Jesus' day. Often they had a staircase on the outside of the house, not on the inside of the house. So when these four men realized that they weren't going to be able to get their friend carried on a mat right in front of Jesus, they realized that they're going to have to go for a highly risky plan B. They're going to climb up the staircase, find a way to get through the roof, and lower this man down. Roof construction was also a little bit different in Jesus' day. There were wooden beams, there were small sticks, there was earth that was compacted in. Sometimes they put tiles in. These roofs were like one or two feet thick. In the spring, there was grass growing on top. So certainly, if these guys are digging a hole in the roof, it was a major disruption to Jesus' teaching. Certainly, if you would have been sitting in the audience, can you imagine what that would have been like? You're looking up and this dust starts to fall and then this mud and this dirt starts to fall and instantly there's a hole that opens up in the ceiling and this paralyzed man is just being lowered down. It'd be wild. I can just picture Peter reprimanding the guys. Like, what are you doing? This is my house, right? And I can picture Jesus at the same moment just giving Peter that look. Says, Peter, calm down. It's gonna be okay. 
And we can expect, we can see what the crowd expected. They're thinking, man, this is the guy who's already healed people. His, his reputation precedes him. And, and now I'm right in front of him. And, and he lowers, there's this man that's lowered right in front of, him, in front of him who can't walk. This is a guy that they knew. This is a guy that they saw in, in town. This is a guy that they knew was, was paralyzed. This wasn't a hoax. This wasn't a setup. They, they knew that this man was paralyzed. And they're expecting for Jesus to say, son, get up and walk. But that's when Jesus throws us just a little bit of a curveball. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Huh, that's a little different than we might expect if we're honest. I would have expected Jesus to say, oh, because of your faith, son, get up and walk, but that's not what he says. Now, some people look at this text and they think, well, Jesus says that because the man was paralyzed because of sin in his life. He did something wrong back when he was 15 or 16 and God punished him and made him paralyzed for the rest of his life. I don't think that's what the text says. I don't think that's what happened. Think of what Jesus says in John chapter 9. There's a man that was born blind and the disciples come up to Jesus and they ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that caused him to be born blind? How does Jesus reply? He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind that the glory of God might be manifest through him. I think it's similar here. I don't believe that he's paralyzed because of sin. It's possible. That's not what the text is saying. Instead, I believe that this man understood that his greatest need from Jesus wasn't healing, it was forgiveness. Just like Jesus is about to read the mind of the scribes, he reads the mind of this young man and gives him what he ultimately wants. But we have to understand that for someone to open their mouth and say, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven, that's a big deal. <laughs> Not anybody, not any ordinary person can say that. Look at the next verse in our text. Verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? Now for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, we're introduced to the scribes. They're the religious leaders. They're the antagonists to Jesus' ministry. We know exactly how this worked. The scribes also heard about Jesus' ministry. They, they heard the rumors and, and they maybe even heard some of the teaching. Maybe they saw some of the miracles. And when they heard that Jesus was teaching in Peter's house, when they heard he was at home in Capernaum, they were the first ones there. They wanted a front row seat. They wanted to, to see if this guy was legit or not. Or probably they wanted to catch him in the act and find a way to discredit his ministry. So they came ready to do some first class detective work. They were ready to disprove that this guy wasn't legit. But in a demonstration of Jesus' divinity, he reads their minds. Look at the next verse. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out from them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. The scribes, they just had accused Jesus of blasphemy. Blasphemy, it might be one of the most serious sins in all of the Old Testament. We might define it this way, profane or irreverent speech against God. Blasphemy was so serious in the Old Testament that it was punishable by death. So for the scribes to think this guy's committing blasphemy, 
That's a pretty serious accusation. They think it in their minds, but we understand the significance. Not any ordinary person can forgive sin. Not a prophet, not a priest, not a king. Only God has the authority to forgive sin. So either Jesus, as God, can forgive sins, or he just committed blasphemy. Those are the only two options in a text like this. But then Jesus asked the scribes a question, what do you think is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, arise, take up your bed, and go home. Because Jesus asked the question, we can assume that the scribes believed that it was easier to say your sins are forgiven. Certainly it's easier to say. Anybody can walk down the street and say, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. And can we verify that? No, we couldn't. But if somebody's walking down the street and says, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed to three paralytics, it's pretty easy to verify, isn't it? Either they stand up or they don't. So the scribes, they believed it was harder to heal than it was to forgive. So Jesus demonstrates his divinity. He demonstrates that he's the son of God by looking at the paralytic after forgiving him, saying, son, take up your mat and go home. (laughs) And the crowd replies and says, we've never seen anything like this. I'm sure that you could just feel the buzz in the room. It would have been wild. But it's a powerful account. After Jesus declares that this man's forgiven, he demonstrates his divinity. He proves himself to be the son of God who alone has the power to forgive. But we have to catch that Jesus uses an interesting title for himself in the text, doesn't he? He calls himself, not the son of God, he calls himself the son of man. The first time in all of Mark's gospel that we're introduced to that title of Jesus, I think Jesus uses it to describe himself 14 times in the book of Mark. But if you know your Bible and you know the Old Testament, it's a title that's even used in the Old Testament. God uses it of Ezekiel, it's used in the Psalms. But why does Jesus use the title Son of Man instead of Son of God? Well, for a couple of reasons, but one, it's ambiguous. It can be used to describe someone who's ordinary, or it can be used to describe someone who's extraordinary or supernatural. Jesus uses the title because after a miracle like this, he's forcing his listeners, his audience to decide, am I the son of God or am I just any ordinary man? So with our three principles tonight, we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of three uh, different individuals or three different groups of people in our account. So first, for our first perspective, I want us to imagine what it would be like to be the crowd. Imagine what it would have been like to be in the room to have the dirt fall on your hair, to see the man fall through the ceiling and to see Jesus' interaction with the scribes and the Pharisees and then see this man that you've known for years, maybe decades, who's never been able to walk. And in an instant, he stands up and walks out of the room. Imagine what that would have been like. An amazing miracle. And I would think, because the people of Capernaum saw a miracle like this, they would have extraordinary faith. I would think that some of the most committed Christ followers in the whole region would have come from Capernaum. I would think that maybe Capernaum would have some of the strongest early church presence of any town in Northern Galilee because of what they saw. That's what we'd expect. But that's not what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Listen to these words. He then began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! Towns just down the road from Capernaum. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You know who Jesus is talking about? He's talking about the same exact people who had just rejected his message. These are the the same people who who watched the miracle. They heard his teaching, and then months or a year or two down the road, they say, yeah, this guy's not legit. He's not the Messiah. I don't want to follow him. But do we understand the severity of Jesus' claim? He says it's going to be better for Sodom on the day of judgment than the town of Capernaum. You remember Sodom from the Old Testament? It was the town that was burned to the ground because it was that sinful. God rescued Lot from the city and burned the rest of the town to the ground. Why is it going to be more tolerable for Sodom than Capernaum on the day of judgment? Makes sense, doesn't it? Sodom didn't see the paralytic walk. They didn't hear the teaching. They didn't see Lazarus walk out of the tomb. They didn't see Jesus feed 5,000 people. The people of Capernaum did, and they still rejected Jesus. Jesus uses an important word in verse 20 of Matthew 11. He says, they did not repent. You've heard that word before, haven't you? It's a military term. It means an about face, to be walking one direction and turn 180 degrees in the other direction, Jesus gives us an important insight that miracles don't generate genuine repentance. And that's our first principle tonight. Miracles don't generate genuine repentance. Because a miracle, if you or I were to witness one, it still leaves us with a choice. Will we or will we not believe? Will we, will we not accept Jesus' way of life give everything we have and follow him. Many of us here today might wish that we could see a miracle. Maybe you've thought something like, if I could just see a miracle, then I'd believe. If I saw what Jesus did in Capernaum, then I'd have no issues in my faith. I wouldn't have any more doubt. If Jesus would just remove this thorn from my life, then I'd believe. If he could just give me my dream relationship, then I'd believe. If he could just give me the promotion that I've been hoping for, then I'd believe. If Jesus would just heal my sick relative, then I'd be a Christian. If Jesus would just bring about peace in Ukraine, then I'd believe. I want a miracle. Have we thought things like that? Well, sorry to break it to you. A miracle is not going to convince you because miracles don't produce genuine belief. They don't automatically equal repentance. It was true for the town of Capernaum. It was true for the region of Galilee. It was true for the scribes. Think about the scribes who were in the front row who watched this miracle. Yet as the gospels go along, we see that the scribes develop a deeper and deeper hatred towards Jesus to the point of wanting to put him to death. That's not just apathy, that's hatred. That's murder. But they saw the miracle. They saw the signs. How could they reject him? Because they were too obsessed with their own glory. They didn't want to give up their power and prestige. They didn't want to follow Jesus. So they rejected him. I wonder if it's possible for us to do the same thing. To encounter Jesus' power. To encounter the truth of scripture. And yet reject it. Because we just don't want to repent. 
Encountering Jesus leaves you and I with a choice. Will I lay aside my own glory, my own dreams, my own desires, my own agenda to follow Jesus, or am I just going to keep living for myself? Repentance means that we let go of the wheel and we let Jesus drive. Repentance means that we have a new sheriff in our heart. Have you believed in Jesus? Have you turned away from your sin by the power of the Holy Spirit and trusted in Christ for your salvation? Repentance, it doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, but it means that the trajectory of our entire life has changed. Believing in Jesus for your salvation is the most important decision that you can make. Don't delay following Christ with your life. And it might be easy for us to think, well, lucky for me, I didn't observe the miracle in Capernaum, so I'm off the hook on Judgment Day. Uh, I don't think we get off the hook quite that easily. Think of all that we've been given as Christians in our country, or even as part of the young adult family. Have you ever realized how unusual, historically, it is to have a hundred translations of the Bible accessible in the palm of your hand? People have died to give you access to Scripture that accessibly. It's wild. Generation after generation has longed to have God's Word in their own language. There's still millions of people around the world that are still waiting to have God's Word in their own language. And yet, we have a hundred translations. Whatever you want to read, it's just right there on your phone. We have access to unparalleled Christian community, to mentors, to accountability, to encouragement. We have more financial means than 99% of the world. We have access to better education than the majority of the world. If you come to Young Adults on Monday, you go to church on Sunday morning, you're receiving biblical teaching at least twice a week. Friends, we've heard the truth. We have access to the truth. We've been given tools to serve, tools to share our faith, tools to invest in others. To whom much has been given, much is expected. Maybe this can be a wake-up call for all of us that when our evaluation day comes in eternity, none of us here tonight are going to be able to say, sorry, Jesus, I, I just didn't know better because we've been given remarkable opportunities. Are we connecting in community? Are we growing in our faith? Are we going, living life on mission, bringing the good news of the gospel to people that need it? We've received much compared to the generations of believers that never had access to God's word, the millions of people that have never heard the gospel. The day when our lives as Christians are evaluated, the bar is not going to be low. And telling Jesus, I'm sorry, I just kind of got distracted by my iPhone. Or, yeah, I was too consumed with making money. Yeah, I guess that relationship really did get the best of me. Or, sorry, Jesus, looking back, I just didn't care that much. Those won't be very fun conversations. Let's work together to faithfully invest the tools that God has given us, not as a way to earn entrance into eternity, but as a worshipful response to the work that God has already done in our heart. Don't be the crowd in Capernaum. Don't experience the power, the glory, the greatness of the gospel message and then reject it. If I'm being honest, that's maybe one of the saddest things of being in ministry. I'm looking back at five years uh, being part of the young adult family, and it's been an amazing five years. But I look back and I can think of individuals who were with us on Monday nights who maybe made a profession of faith, who started doing 
Bible studies. They were involved in community. They tasted the glory of the gospel. Were they saved or not? I don't know. But now maybe they don't reply to text messages. They don't come. They've rejected Jesus. I don't know why. It's a hard. It's a reality of ministry. It's a reality of being part of the young adult family. But why? Why would someone taste the glory of the gospel and then reject it? Well, ultimately, they just decided that following Jesus isn't worth it. I want each of us to count the cost of following Christ and together realizing that there's nothing better than knowing Jesus and living for Jesus. Don't be the crowd. With our second principle tonight, I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of the four friends. The four friends, imagine what it'd be like to be one of them. If that was me, I definitely, there's no way I would have been that bold. I would have come out up with like five or six or seven different excuses not to dig a hole in the roof. I mean, think, guys, what are you thinking? The teacher's teaching. Can't we wait till he's done? At some point, the teacher's going to have to come out of the house. So can't we just hold our friend on the mat outside the door and just wait for him to come out? Or guys, have you thought about who's going to do the roof repair? Like none of us have credit cards. How are we going to pay for this, right? I mean, you can come up with excuse after excuse, but that wasn't the friends. They took a risk. They took a risk of faith for a friend. And that's our next principle. Take a risk of faith for a friend. We certainly might not be lowering our friends on a mat through a roof anytime soon. At least I hope not. Please don't get any ideas uh, for announcements next time, Maggie and Bianca and Sarah. <laughs> but there's certainly risks that we can take for a friend. Think of evangelism. There's a risk that comes every t- any time that we share the good news of the gospel. What if they reject the message? What if they reject me? What if they don't want to listen? What if they think I'm weird? There's a risk every time we open our mouth to talk about Jesus. There's a risk that comes anytime we offer to pray for someone. <laughs> what if they say, yeah, no, I, I don't want you to pray for me. Or what if they say, yeah, there's nothing you can pray about. Then what do we do? I don't know. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. There's a risk that comes every time we offer our finances. What if they abuse the money I'm giving them? What if they keep asking me for money? What if I actually do need that $50 tomorrow? Stepping out in faith requires that we take a risk. It's what one pastor calls only God moments, that if God wouldn't have shown up, nothing would have occurred. I'm not talking about putting God to the test like we talked about two weeks ago or like Gideon did. But instead, maybe it means simply sharing our faith with a family member or a friend. Praying and asking that God does a great work of salvation. Maybe it's simply just offering to pray with someone that we encounter in everyday life. A couple weeks ago, a group of us were down in Wisconsin Dells and our service project was Zach and Becky Alwyn. We were there for like 30 hours and we just had an awesome time. I really hope we can do it next year so more of us can experience a couple days with Zach and Becky. They're amazing people. And Zach and I were walking through one of these housing complexes. It was this rare moment where it was just me and, and him. Um, and we started talking to this security guard and um, I was kind of ready to, to move on and try to get with the rest of the team. And Zach pauses and and looks at him and says, can we just take a moment and pray for you? How can we pray for you? And we had three or four minutes just to pause and and pray for this young man named Josh. Um, And I was just reminded of how important it is to do what Zach does, just to pause and to pray for people. It's a little thing, but we'll never know the impact that had on Josh's life. Let's take a risk of faith for a friend uh, this week.
So for a final principle, I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of the paralytic, of the man who is miraculously healed. Just imagine (laughs) what it would be like to grow up paralyzed, not being able to walk for decades, not, not being able to clothe yourself or bathe yourself, not being able to provide for yourself to make money for yourself, to be confined to being a beggar just to make ends meet, never being able to just take a walk around the block or kick the soccer ball around, never being able to stand in worship or kneel in prayer, literally always being dependent on other people for everything, never being able to take care of yourself and wishing every day as far back as you can remember, that somehow you just wake up the next day and you'd be healed, that you could walk, that you could take care of yourself, that you could have a normal life just like everybody else. But every day you wake up and you're reminded, I can't walk. It'd be horrible, wouldn't it? But that's when you hear about this man, this miracle worker, this teacher, Jesus. He's been in the region and, and you start hearing these rumors and you think, no, this is too good to be true. No, I've been paralyzed for too long. He couldn't, he can help me. But the stories keep flooding in. And, and then you hear he's in your town, he's in Capernaum, and, and you pull your buddies together and you say, guys, we've got to go find him. This is my chance. I could be healed. And your four friends, they put you on a mat and you know, they, they devise up this plan to try to get you in front of Jesus. It doesn't work. The room's too full. So they go with the risky plan B and they rip open the roof and they lower you down. And, and you get right in front of Jesus. He looks you in the eye. You can see the compassion in his face. And then Jesus opened his mouth. He addresses you as son. And he says, son, Your sins are forgiven. (laughs) Would you be disappointed? Come on, Jesus, that's not what I came for. I came to be healed. I wanted to walk. I didn't want forgiveness. Is that how you'd respond? I think my balloon would be instantly deflated. Jesus, that's not why I came. I wanted healing, not forgiveness. Friends, this text helps us understand that our greatest need from Jesus isn't healing. It's not success. It's not a a purpose in life. It's not even a best friend. Our greatest need from Jesus is forgiveness. That's our final principle tonight. My greatest need from Jesus is forgiveness. It's the greatest gift we can receive. Without forgiveness, earthly healing, yeah, it might give us a happy life, but it does nothing to impact our eternity. When I think of a text that gives us a picture of what this forgiveness looks like, I automatically think of Ephesians 2, where Paul writes this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace we've been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the glorious picture of the forgiveness that the Father has offered us through the Son. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. 
All of us have a past. None of us are even close to perfect. We've all walked as enemies of God. None of us were born Christ followers. Nothing that we did in our own effort or our own merit earned a way for God to rescue and redeem us. He brought us back to life when we were dead in our sin. Seeing forgiveness as Jesus' greatest gift, it leads to humility. It leads to the humility that sounds like the Apostle Paul when he says, I'm the worst of sinners that's ever walked the planet. That's the humility like the sinful woman in Luke 7 who washes Jesus' feet with her hair and the worship to provide such a sacrifice because she understands the depth of her depravity and the greatness of Jesus' forgiveness that covers her sin. Seeing forgiveness as Jesus' greatest gift leads to humble prayer like the tax collector in Luke 18 who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, while beating his chest. When was the last time we paused just to think about his forgiveness? To remember that all of our sin, past, present, and future, was paid for, was finished at the cross, the moment that we believe in Christ for our salvation. is a gift that we sometimes take for granted, that we like to forget about. Maybe we minimize and think, I'm just, I'm just not that bad of a person. We forget how filthy our past has been. Might be others of us that have the opposite problem, struggle in the opposite way. Sounds like this. If everyone knew what I was struggling with, or what I am struggling with, what I have struggled with, this would be a different conversation. I'm just too far gone to be forgiven. A couple weeks ago, we talked about tactics from the enemy, one that often goes undetected and unaddressed is guilt and shame over sin that has already been forgiven. Thoughts that just keep coming to your mind that you can't seem to shake. Memories that keep playing on repeat. Thoughts like, I'm a horrible person. Jesus could never love me. If everybody knew what I've done, they wouldn't be my friend. <laughs> Come on, I've gone back to that same sin time and time again. Is there really forgiveness one more time? Friend, if that's you tonight, you need to hear that the greatest gift that Jesus has to offer you is forgiveness. If you've never gone to him and confessed, go to him. Confess that sin and hold fast to truth from a verse like 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you have confessed that sin, if you've taken that sin and you put it in God's heavenly trash can, but the enemy just keeps bringing up those memories or bringing up the feelings of guilt and shame that cripple you, then it's time to fight some spiritual battle. It's time to memorize scripture like 1 John 1, 9 or a passage that I have handwritten on my desk, 1 Corinthians six eleven, that says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. If you're having those feelings of guilt and shame, it's time to verbalize those, to talk about them with a very trusted friend or a mentor. It's time when those thoughts come to mind to speak those passages of scripture out loud using the sword of the spirit to fight against the enemy. If there's one thing that I want us to grasp tonight, it's this. The greatest miracle that Jesus performed was not making a paralytic walk, making a leper heal, be healed, making the blind see, 
or even calling Lazarus out of the grave. The greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed was forgiveness, made possible through his death and his glorious resurrection. A gift of forgiveness that has been offered literally to billions of people, but tragically a gift that has gone unopened by many. Think back to our second principle, take a risk of of faith for a friend. The greatest gift we can receive is forgiveness. Therefore, the greatest gift that we can offer is forgiveness. By sharing this gift, it certainly comes with a risk because the gospel is offensive. It starts with bad news, a painful reality that can offend people. The message of the gospel can lead to rejection. Jesus faced rejection. His followers are going to face rejection. But sharing the gospel can also lead to the greatest imaginable gift, someone deciding to turn away from their old way of life to believe in Jesus. And we won't know unless we take the risk. Yes, I want our young adult family to be a place where we connect, a place where we feel at home, a place where we find community. But more than that, God desires that our young adult family is comfortable with being uncomfortable, that's not afraid to take risks, that sees forgiveness as Jesus' greatest gift I look around the room tonight and I can't even imagine what God could do through this group if we're comfortable with being uncomfortable, ready to take a risk of faith. Let's pray together. Father, it is always a good thing to open up your word and take a good long look at Jesus. Even a passage like this, maybe one that we've known for months, years, or even decades, how there's always something new to glean and to understand, always something new to apply to our life, because that's who Jesus is. We want to look like Jesus. We want to love Jesus more. Give us eyes to see the areas that we have to grow. Father, if there is anybody here tonight that doesn't know Jesus, as their Savior. May today be the day when they believe, and by the power of your Spirit, they turn from their old way of life and follow Christ. If there's any here tonight, Father, that are just struggling with guilt and shame, maybe it's something that they've never verbalized, maybe it's things that happened years ago that they've never, um, that have been forgiven a long time ago, but haven't verbalized some of these feelings recently. Father, may You give them the diligence to fight well, but may you prompt them with the peace of your forgiveness. And as we dialogue a little bit in our small groups tonight, um, may you guide our conversation. We're thankful just to be together uh, in Jesus' name.